0: Welcome to you if you are watching this online or at one of our sites at the Clarendon Centre, at Hove, at Shoreham or at Oasis. Hope you've been enjoying our series called The Promise Endures, which is all about how God's faithfulness is sort of interwoven through the lives and deaths of various characters that we're reading about in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And what we're seeing is the ups and downs. There are great moments and there are sinful moments as well. And we're up to chapter 27, where we have a family, a dysfunctional family. And as we read that, we might be disturbed of how Bad it is, but we must remember this is good news because actually the good news is that God can take and does take messy, dysfunctional family situations and works his goodness and his purposes through that. Now, you might be uh, from a dysfunctional family. You might describe it in that way or be facing difficulties with people in your family right now. Well, the encouragement is that God works in situations like that and can do that for you as well. One of the promises in the New Testament of the Bible, it says that God rescues us from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. That's the language it uses. But what it's saying is our family background doesn't have to define us. That God, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, wraps us up into a wonderful new story, new family that shapes us and defines us in a way that no other family could. So there's much to be encouraged about. But also in this passage, there is much to warn us and be a provocation to us to consider our family life because the reason that this is going so badly for Isaac and Rebekah and their two sons Esau and Jacob is because they're a spiritual drift what you will see is that none of these characters are really motivated by being obedient to God's word. And that causes the breakdown of family that we're about to read about. And so Isaac and Rebekah, they're not united in their marriage. And Jacob and Esau are squabbling over the blessing and hating one another by the end of it. This is a warning to us and we before we read it, it's a long passage, we'll, we'll hear it in a moment. To get this in our minds that actually the bad aspects of this family has come about because of spiritual decline. Really that's at Isaac's door most of all. Because we might experience difficulties in, in our life whether we are single or whether we are married or whether we have children. And sometimes the problems, difficulties in our lives, things that are not quite right, maybe we have habits of sin or we have marital issues or we are children, that's a struggle. And we think that's a pressing issue. And a passage like this reminds us, what are our spiritual inputs? Are we living in the purposes of God? Because actually the spiritual inputs in our lives are going to have a huge difference on the externals. We shouldn't be so focused on the presenting issues of the difficulties of relationships. Actually, you know, for example, in, in our marriages, if we are actually praying together, if there are spiritual goodness going into our relationships, that is just going to change the whole dynamic. With our children, sometimes we get so focused on, on controlling their behavior or, or, or disciplining them, perhaps, we forget what we're called to is discipling them um, raising them in the purposes of God, bringing spiritual truth and the grace of Jesus Christ into their lives. Are the spiritual inputs right in your life and in your family's life? By way of illustration, there seems to be increasing understanding that say for professional athletes, diet is so key, not just to be healthy, but actually to protect against uh, injury. If you have a poor diet, you're actually more likely to pick up muscle injuries and that sort of thing. For us, and our life, the same spiritually is true. If our spiritual inputs, if we're walking with Jesus, that is going to protect us against injury, protect us from things going wrong. And even though things do go wrong, we'll have a resilience to navigate through it. I want you to have that in mind as we hear the passage and all the difficulties of what's going on here, but to have that spiritual focus in mind. Let's listen to the passage now from Genesis chapter 27. When
1: Isaac was old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son? And he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old, I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau, so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, Obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son, only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went, and took them, and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. And then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game so that you may bless me his father isaac said to him who are you he answered i am your son your firstborn esau then isaac trembled very violently and said who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and i ate it all before you came and i have blessed him yes he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son?' Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth your dwelling shall be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck.
0: What I want to do in our time together right now is focus on each of the four characters in this story and what we can learn from them. As I've said from the beginning, Isaac is responsible for some spiritual decline that affects all of the family here. The story is, in this chapter is all about his blessing. But you might think, well, Matt, you've said that, but how do we know the spiritual drift here? Well, consider what motivates him. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, you would have we would have read together Genesis 25, where it said, Isaac loved Esau, which is not great at all to have a favorite. Please do not have favorites with your children. But interestingly as well, what it says is, why, why did he love Esau? Was it to do with Esau, his elder son? No. Because he ate of his game. So, what we see in Isaac's life is some spirituality, but also mixed in with his own personal selfish desires. And that's picked up in verse 4 from what we've just read there as well. He says, Prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may, be, may bless you before I die. And that kind of language is actually picked up in the New Testament as well. In Philippians 3 verse 19, it talks about how if we reject Jesus, it says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. And that can seem like a strange idea. Maybe you're not someone who is, your faith is in Jesus right now, and you're thinking, well, that's a bit pejorative, that's a bit uh, dismissive, their God is their, their belly. But, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't live like that. But what the Bible is saying is when we reject God, uh, it's not that we don't have God, but our God becomes much smaller. And what it actually becomes is just based on our desires the desires. From, that come from within us. And maybe if you're agnostic or you're atheist, you might say, no, no, this is, this is not right. I, if I'm an atheist, I'm basing my outlook on life, on what is evidence and reason and rationality. It's, no, it's actually the Christians, the religious focus. They are the ones who base their lives on their subjective Feelings. You know, they want God to exist. It gives them comfort to think that he does exist. That's why they believe in God. No, atheism is more to do with rational and evidence-based approach to life. Atheist, you're more empiricist in your approach. What we know, we can't know about God because we can't see him. We can't, what is real is what is observed, Derived from the senses, perhaps, that's what empiricism is all about. And in one sense, that is just great faith that we're placing in our sense perception or in our rationality. And it's interesting what's going on in this passage. In one sense, it seems to be mocking or at least showing the limits of our sense perception. And shows a fallibility of people and how good we are at perceiving what is going on. Notice here in Isaac's situation that all of his senses fail him in some way or another. It's said right from the beginning there that he's old and blind, so that's obvious, he can't see what's going on. Secondly, he hears Jacob's voice. Jacob comes to him and Isaac hears, he's like, this this is Jacob's voice. But for some reason, he doesn't trust that, uh, what he hears. Thirdly, it says he touches Jacob's hands, which are covered in these uh, animal skins. And what he feels, he, he, he he thinks that, oh, it must be Esau then his touch, sense of touch fails him as well. And then finally, it says that he, just before he gives this blessing to Jacob accidentally, he, he, he brings Jacob close and he smells the garments and they smell like Esau. And so he's like, okay. And you think, why is, why is he so convinced and misled by his senses here? Well, because of the final sense, taste. He's so uh, excited about having this meal that he, he is deceived In this manner, his God is his belly. There's an example of this kind of dynamic, I think, that we have seen recently in our uh, culture and context. Hopefully it's not too controversial uh, to say. Through the pandemic, our government made repeated claims that the way they were going to navigate through this is to, say, well, we follow the science. And that was the repeated mantra. That was the claim. And then what has transpired in recent weeks and months is that the reality of what was going on in Downing Street and uh, behind closed doors, what that, that w- there were parties going on. So actually their behavior betrayed what was really their motivation. They weren't really following the science, not in their individual, personal behavior. They were following what, doing what they, they wanted to do. Weren't following the science, weren't following the rules, but actually driven by their motivation, what, their desires, living as they actually wanted to do. And at the end of the day, without God's intervention, in our lives, that's what we all do. We will live however we see fit. We will do what we want to do. We do what's convenient. We do what's pleasurable to us. We live according to the desires within us. And that goes for someone who is would say they're atheistic. It goes for someone also who say, well, I'm spiritual, not religious, but spiritual. What's going on there? Well, it's just a picking and choosing of various spiritual ideas based on what? Based on what seems good to the individual. I like this, so therefore I'm gonna embrace this type of spirituality. And it's subjective, it's all to do with what we like. You see, perhaps for the atheist, it's actually extremely difficult to live consistently according to that atheistic worldview. Because in an athe- when we reject God, we have to accept that ultimately nothing matters. There's no meaning to life. That people, one another, are nothing more than biology. And ultimately, without a God, there is no morality either. But what I see around in our culture is many people who say, no, I don't believe in God and would probably have claimed to be atheist, uh, an atheist or agnostic. But yet, at the same time, live as if their life truly does matter, that people are really significant, that we care about one another in a way that is inconsistent with an atheistic worldview. And also, we even campaign on moral issues, that there is a sense of morality. You see, it's very actually very difficult to live as if God is not there at all. And what is actually going on is that we are motivated by what we find within us. Actually an atheism doesn't actually motivate us or shape the way we live. It's something that we put up ultimately, perhaps you're in this boat, perhaps you're watching this and you're atheist. If you're really honest with yourself, are you living consistently according to that worldview? Or is that something that you say in order to free you to live how you really just wanna live? If we're honest, atheism is an intellectual technique to dismiss God so that we can get on with living however we please. Because the reality of God is all around us. (laughs) Take a walk outside, consider the wonder and improbability of the universe that we exist in. And yet the Bible says that we suppress the truth. We know, just taking a look around that God exists. But we suppress that truth. We don't want it to be true. Atheism is like a duvet that we pull over our heads to shield us from the God who made us and the implications of his existence on our lives. We say he's not there because we don't want him to be there. Let me move on to consider the other characters here. We have Esau. Now we've seen how Isaac follows his appetite more than God's promise. But what about Esau? He seems to be uh, jilted here. I don't know how much sympathy you have For Esau. Perhaps if you're from a a British kind of uh, outlook on life, you play by the rules, we might consider this story and think actually Esau is being treated very unfairly. He should have got the blessing and he gets tricked out of it. Well, perhaps you might have sympathy with Esau, but just be careful on on that one. First of all, this rule that Esau should get the blessing. Well, where does that come from? Now, God is a just God, but he's not constrained by human rules and he doesn't owe anything to Esau to get this blessing. You see, in the time of Jesus in the New Testament, the Pharisees misunderstood God in this tragic way that they so saw that God was a God of order, that that skewed everything else and thought, no, God has to fit in this box and act in this certain way. And so it's unfair for God to operate outside of that. And Jesus said, you've missed the way round it is. Yes, God has made laws and order in nature, but God is a sovereign God. And Jesus in his miracles was often subverting those laws, turning them upside down as he pleases to show his grace. The reality is Esau was not, Owed anything by his father or by God. And we've already read in chapter 25 how Esau despised his birthright. And you see, what God ultimately was asking Esau to do was to humbly accept the path that God had for him. Even before Jacob and Esau were born, it was said that the older will serve the younger. That's what God's plan for each, for Esau and Jacob's lives were. But Esau couldn't accept this. He couldn't take that actually his younger brother was someone that he should serve. And sometimes in our lives, God does this. He puts us in a situation where we have to serve someone else and we think this is not right. This is not fair. We need to understand that God is in control of all things. And sometimes he does this in order to humble us. And in a culture of comparison that we live in, it's so important that we, that we get this. It, it seems that Jesus had to teach his disciples this many, many times. Because when you read the New Testament, in the book of Peter and James, who are both around Jesus during his lifetime, they both use this expression. There's this verse about humble yourself and let God raise you up. It's kind of like an acknowledgement that Jesus' disciples often didn't get this. They were jostling for position. And we see that at the end of John's gospel as well. There's one point that Peter says to Jesus, what about him? And what Jesus says to him, don't worry about him. What is it to you? What happens to him? You follow me. And it's a reminder to us as well. In our walk with Jesus, in our life, sometimes we look at other Christians or other people around us and think, well, what's God doing with them? What's God doing with them? Oh, if only I was a bit more like, no, no, Jesus. What is it to you what I do with them? I have a plan for you. I have purposes for you. Your faithfulness is following what I have put before you. You. And Isaac, sorry, Esau missed out on this because he couldn't accept this. And he gets himself into all sorts of bitterness and trouble because of this. Thirdly, let's consider Jacob. We might ask the question, while Jacob gets the blessing, is he more deserving of it? No, not at all. Make no mistake. Even in this passage, Jacob is presented to us as an outright liar. In verse 20 of the passage, when uh, Isaac asked him, how, how have you put this meal together so quickly? He says, because the Lord your God granted me success. Not only is that a lie, it's also blasphemy. He's saying, oh, God did this. He's actually saying my deception is something that God did. It's blasphemous. No, no, Jacob is not more deserving of the blessing at all. And as I mentioned before, often the Bible just presents the characters, warts and all, real people and all fallen. And the truth is, when the microscope is on any of our lives, the flaws are shown for what they are. And The Bible doesn't apologize for doing this on people's lives. There's only one person in the Bible that you can look at. And the more you look at, the more scrutiny they are under, the more perfection you see. For everyone else, including us, the more you're under the microscope, the more flaws are apparent. If anyone was to look at our lives in detail, you would see how broken and sinful each one of us are. There's a vivid example of that with many, several, it seems, famous or infamous Court cases happening right now that are catching headlines both uh, in the US and in the UK. We've got Depp versus Heard. We've got uh, Rooney versus Vardy in the Wagatha Christie uh, court case. And it's ironic, isn't it, that people go to court in one sense to defend their reputation. And what happens when they get put under scrutiny is the opposite. Their reputation, all of, everyone involved their reputation gets tarnished and tarnished. And before we point the finger and look askance at what's happening, we must remember that if any of us was in the court and our lives, our words, our motivations, things that we've done in the past was under scrutiny, (laughs) our reputation would dive as well. And that's what the Bible says. All have fallen short. Jacob's like that. And so is Rebecca. Rebecca, it seems that Jacob and Rebecca are more spiritually switched on. Okay, so they're alive to the importance of the blessing. But the way they go about getting hold of that is deceptive and sinful. And in fact, Rebecca's behavior demonstrates really almost like the definition of what sin is. Sin is the opposite of faith. It's when we rely on ourselves rather than God to get something that we want. When we reflect on our own sinful behavior and ask the question, why why do we cheat? Why do we lie? Why do we betray? Why are we unfaithful? Why are we selfish? Why are we cruel? It's ultimately because we want something. We want to get something whether that's pleasure, whether that's respect, whether that's power, whether that's influence, to get hold of it or to protect it, to keep hold of it, it causes us to do certain things. And that's like the definition of what sin is. We wouldn't sin, we wouldn't do things wrong unless there was, we thought we'd get something out of it. But the Bible tells that story from start to finish, back in the garden, right at the beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve. And what were they told? Oh, you can have this. You don't have to trust God and what he says. You can just take it. You can just take this fruit. Demonstrating that we take without relying on God. And we have the the same devil in the New Testament with Jesus. What does he say to Jesus? You can have the whole world bow down to you. You don't have to rely on the Father. I'll give you it. You can have it. You just take it. It's the temptation of a shortcut to get something that is good, but the temptation has suggested, the lie suggested that we can get hold of it without trusting God. And that's what sin is, the promise of a shortcut that's full of lies. And we'll go on in the next few weeks to look at how, even though Jacob gets blessed and God continues his story through Jacob's family line, The deceptiveness that happens here has great consequences, horrible consequences for the rest of their lives, for Rebecca, for Jacob, for Esau as well. Sinfulness just explodes. And even though God works through that, the consequences are still felt. The shortcut is a temptation, but never pays off. So here we are, we have a story with with no redeeming characters. Really, it's a very dark story. What hope is there? And perhaps, I've, as I've been describing these various characters, you resonate or identify with different ones. Perhaps the spiritual drifting of Isaac, perhaps the self righteousness of Esau, perhaps, like Jacob, you realize that you're undeserving of any blessing. Or maybe like Rebecca, you have even recently taken those shortcuts, those sinful shortcuts, rather than trusting God. And perhaps you're trapped in habits of sin. Well, the only hope when we consider lives like this and sin like this, the only hope is that God, as I said at the beginning, brings his wonderful purposes through even situations like this. God takes sinful situation, takes adversity and brings his goodness and blessing through it. And and that's the gospel. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is about. Jesus stepping into darkness, stepping into sin, stepping into mess. And amazingly, even this dysfunctional family actually still points us to the perfect family. The perfect father and son relationship that we see in God. You see, Esau, he thought he, he thought he deserved the blessing and God rejected him because he wouldn't humble himself. Jacob got the blessing even though he didn't deserve it. And so what about for us? whether you've been a Christian for ages or you're just kind of coming in, trying to discover some of it. How do we get God's blessing? How do we get God's favour? How do we have God the Father speak goodness over our lives? How do we get this relationship with God? Well, it's not through our good efforts. It's not because of who we are and what we've done as Esau thought, because actually only Jesus is the true Esau, the true worthy older son. Instead, we come as Jacob, undeserving, but hidden in the older brother. See, the Bible says we can't come to God on our own basis, on our own terms. We've got to give up on that. But the wonderful truth of what Jesus has done is that we can come to God hidden in Him. Colossians 3 verse 3 says, As a Christian, you have died to your old self and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that's the only way. And in that way, this horrible story points us to the wonderful cross where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes and takes the sins of the world, our sins, and is clothed with them, takes on that, and instead exchanges for that sin. He gives us his clothes of perfect righteousness. He takes our sinful rags. He gives us his perfection, his clothes of righteousness. And he clo- through faith in him, we receive them. And so how do we come to the Father? We come to the Father hidden in Christ, clothed in Jesus we're undeserving, but Jesus gives that to us as a gift so we can, we can know God. We can know relationship with him. We can be accepted and embraced just like Jacob is embraced. We too are embraced by our Father, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And the aroma of Christ has covered us and rises up to the Father. So he embraced us and that's, that's how we live. Because of that exchange that has taken place. It's only through Christ we can know God. Only clothed in Christ we are accepted by the Father. So let's come to him today. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would draw close to us as we are clothed in Christ. We would cast off sin that has held us back and fully embrace Christ and all that he has won for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you have given your life, that we might be clothed in your perfect righteousness. We come to you now and we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.